Why don't you open your Bibles then, or navigate over to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at Romans 9, 19 through 24 tonight. Our text is going to introduce us to something I'm calling the clay nation. God is the potter, and Israel in his sovereign hands is like clay. Keep in mind the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. You should always obviously keep in mind the context of uh, the particular scripture that you're in, but maybe even more so here because they're so misunderstood. Jewish believers were trying to reconcile God's Old Testament prophecies and promises to Israel with their current circumstances in which Israel had been set aside, the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Paul the Apostle, who's writing this letter, presented a series of Old Testament examples to show that God was and is consistent in his dealings with Israel. The nation had rejected the supernatural birth offered to them and was therefore more like Ishmael than Isaac. And so the Lord was able to, or Paul was able to use that uh, illustration. The nation had despised their birthright and was therefore more like Esau than they were like Jacob. And so Paul was able to draw their attention to that illustration. And the Jews had hardened their hearts and were more like Pharaoh than they were like Moses. These examples, especially that last one of Pharaoh and the hardening of the heart, gave rise to an objection. And that's where we start in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault For who has resisted God's will? The contemporary English version captures the sense of the objection. It translates that same verse this way. How can God blame us if he makes us behave the way he wants us to? The question reveals a profound understanding of what Paul had been teaching. The Jews were realizing that God knew Jesus Christ would come to his own, but that they would not receive him. He knew that the offer of the kingdom would be rejected and that the Jewish leaders would hand the Lord over to be crucified. And so there was at least this objection that if this was indeed the will of God all along, was it really fair to hold the nation of Israel accountable and responsible? Well, here's the answer, verses 20 and 21. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Wow. It sounds like God, because he is God, can harden whomever he chooses, whenever he chooses, for his own purposes, and that we're not even allowed to question that. One such proponent of that interpretation puts it like this, and I quote, admittedly dreadful, God has chosen, designed, and prepared certain people for destruction. Their only purpose is to serve as objects of God's wrath, so the elect can better appreciate God's mercies toward them and his power. Likewise, the elect were chosen, designed, and prepared to serve, but they were fashioned to serve as objects of his mercy and therefore glorify him. So is that what these verses are teaching? Well, not so fast. You have to know where Paul got this idea about the clay nation, about the potter and the clay. 
It's from Jeremiah, and specifically chapters 18 and 19. The, uh, these are quotes from that passage. In the Jeremiah passage, and we're going to look at a couple of verses there tonight. In that passage, Israel, of course, the clay, God the potter. The clay is said to be marred. As a result, the potter could not mold it as he desired. Instead, he made it into another vessel, one more consistent with the material in his hands. God then provides his own commentary on what it means for the potter to work with the clay. It's in Jeremiah chapter 18, and it's verses 6 through 11. I'm going to read it to you. I think it's probably going to be up on the screen too. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you, return now every one from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Now, this is the well that Paul is drawing from. This is the section of scripture that he's quoting from. As I went through there and as you read along, did you hear the two ifs? Well, let me read them to you again. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil... I'll relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. If it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. God's own application, God's own commentary, return now every run from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Does that sound at all like God has arbitrarily formed the clay according to his will without taking into account the will of the clay? Well, no, it doesn't sound like that at all when you go back to the original context. So important that we understand where these uh, quotations come from. Because I admit, when you read in Romans on face value, you think, wow, so, so I've, I've got an objection and, and the answer is, you're just a puny human being that doesn't deserve to talk to God and it's a good thing you're the elect because if you're not, you're doomed to hell and there's nothing that can help you. And, and that's really not at all what's happening in these verses. Paul is using a text that would be very familiar to the Jews and they would understand that the potter working with the clay uh, from Jeremiah meant that the clay had certain responsibilities and accountabilities. God's own commentary on the potter and the clay is better than any of man's comments that I could find. He said that his dealings with Israel and other nations, for that matter, depend upon their obedience to him. He holds them responsible and then judges them accordingly. He says, I want to bless you, but if you sin, I can't, and I'm going to deal with you as marred clay. If you're sinning, I'm going to have to discipline you, but if you repent... I will relent from my discipline. It makes perfect sense. 
The hardening came from the clay, not from the potter. Finding the clay hardened, God would shape it according to its nature, always looking for repentance and faith. Now, in Jeremiah 19, if you go on with the story, the vessel on that particular potter's wheel was finished. Jeremiah takes it out to the field and breaks it in pieces. He throws it out into the potter's field where the junk pottery ends up. It remained marred in the potter's hands. It was only fit for destruction. It was a picture of the coming destruction that would be Israel's if their hearts remained hardened against God. Remember, Jeremiah was ministering at a time when Babylon was coming against uh, Israel, uh, Judah in particular, and Jerusalem. And, and the people, because of their pride, uh, they didn't believe that God would allow the temple to fall. And so they went on in their sin and their idolatry. And Jeremiah, similar to Ezekiel, only Ezekiel was ministering to the people who had already been taken captive to Babylon. Jeremiah was using different props and different visual aids. Uh, for a while, he went around with a, 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 a yoke on him signifying how they would be taken into slavery and all of that. And so this potter's thing, you know, he takes them out and he shows them the, the vessel and then it's thrown into the field and he says, hey, you're the clay, God's the potter. If he's not gonna be able to mold you into a vessel of honor, if you're not gonna repent, then you're gonna have to be thrown out into that field and taken captive. And so the Jew would understand this. Officially, by the decision of the leadership, the nation of Israel was hardened against Jesus. God treated them accordingly. He has been treating Israel as a nation accordingly for the last 2,000 years of human history. Verses 22 through 24 describe those 2,000 years. For us, it's a past and ongoing history. Israel is being disciplined. The gospel has been going out directly to the Gentiles. And so verse 22 says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, there's some disagreement as to who is being described as the vessels of wrath. I tend to think that it's the non-believing Jewish nation, so guilty before God, yet long endured by him on account of his promises to them. Though provoked to visit discipline on the Jews uh, on their nation for their sin and rejecting Christ and thus to demonstrate his power, yet God endures with his long suffering their rejection of the Lord. <clears throat> and so God wanting to show his wrath, make his power known, in other words, wanting to deal with the nation of Israel still endures with long suffering uh, them. And then verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. The vessels of mercy are both Gentile and Jewish believers in the church age. While God is being long-suffering with the non-believing Jews, he's showering his mercy on whosoever will believe in Jesus Christ. You know, uh, sometimes the simplest explanation is the best explanation. I mean, we do have the vantage point of history, do we not? From where we sit in uh, 2012, uh, we can look back, we can see God dealing with the nation of Israel in uh, the, you know, the 20th century, bringing them back into their land as a nation and establishing them again. And whatever people thought about uh, 
Israelology and theology, uh, uh, you know, up until then, they should have changed their mind and thought, hey, we were, we were wrong about this. I guess God is dealing with the nation of Israel. And then you keep looking back and you see him disciplining them over these past 2,000 years for their rejection of Christ. Of course, from our point of view, it's a harsh and severe discipline, a long period of time. Peter, a Jew, uh, in his epistle says, hey, you know, with, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. Not to minimize any human suffering, but it really hasn't been that long on God's uh, pr- timetable and from God's perspective. And so, so this is what's happening in our world. What, what we're reading about, we don't have to have any fancy interpretation of this. We understand this. That's uh, all Paul is saying is that, uh, you know, what, what happened was Israel rejected Christ, and as a result, God has to discipline them. And while he's disciplining them, the gospel is going out. And God is being glorified because whosoever will can come to Christ. And, and if you read the book of Acts, it's such a mind blower to the Jews that Gentiles can get saved without having to do anything except believe. They don't have to become Jews. They don't have to convert to Judaism. They don't have to keep the Sabbath. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to eat certain things and not eat certain other things. It's all to the glory of God, it's an, but it's an absolute mind blower to the Jew. I don't think we understand sometimes that mindset. Well, we don't. We, we, even if you were Jewish, you wouldn't understand the first century Jewish mindset, and so you have to put yourself back in there and think, wow, what is going on? Didn't God make all these promises to Abraham? Aren't we his chosen nation? How is it that God can do this? And what is he doing? And Paul says, well, it's, it's, it's built into the scriptures. I can show you from the word what happened. And we could speculate, well, what if Israel had... I, I remember I've, I've heard different preachers talk about this. John MacArthur and others who say, well, what if, you know, the Jews had received Jesus Christ? What if they'd acknowledged that he was their savior? Well, he would have still had to die, but that's a mind bender. That's a head scratcher. I don't know how that works out. But the Jew here is understanding, says, well, wait a minute. You mean that Jesus knew that he would come to his own and his own receive him not? It seems like it's all predetermined, so how can God hold us responsible for it? And Paul says, because you are responsible for it, because it's not predetermined. And it's hard for us to understand these things, uh, but I think they make sense to us. Now, he says... Uh, there that this was all prepared beforehand. That's not a reference to electing individuals uh, in eternity past for eternal life. It, it has nothing to do with that. Paul's referring to the preparation made in the scripture that anticipated beforehand the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus and the gospel going out to the Gentiles for the glory of God. For example, We don't have time to go into it in depth right now, but we've touched on this a couple of times in our studies. In the great prophecy given to Daniel regarding the flow of history, especially the flow of history with regards to the Jewish nation, we see a period of 69 weeks of seven years leading up to the Savior being cut off by his people. Then there's a break in the timing until eventually there's a final one week of seven years to be fulfilled. Everybody's worried about the Mayan calendar. They ought to be worried about Daniel's calendar. That's the only real calendar. 69 weeks of years already fulfilled. That came to an end. And now there's a final week of seven years that will be fulfilled. There's a break. There's a parenthesis. There's a gap. We believe in the gap theory when it comes to uh, prophecy. There's a gap 
Right now, it's been going on for 2,000 years. That's where we live in this church age. And then the final seven years is yet future. It's the time described in Revelation as the great tribulation. So you can see how God prepared beforehand for the rejection of Jesus by Israel for the time when his glory would be revealed in the salvation of whosoever will believe. And so this is what Paul is doing in this chapter. He's explaining to the Jew carefully, consistent with Scripture, God knows what he's doing, and it's already prepared beforehand that these things would unfold. And so verse 24, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. God is calling all who will believe, both Jew and Gentile. And this verse, this is a great summary of what was going on in the time of Paul in the book of Acts. God was calling not Jews only, but also the Gentiles. And Paul especially could say this because he was out on the mission field. He would always go into a city, find the Jewish synagogue if there was one, or a gathering of Jews. He would preach to them from their scriptures about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, He would eventually get kicked out of the synagogue uh, by the Jews who didn't want to receive Christ, and then he would take the gospel to the Gentiles and anyone else who would believe. And so this is all him describing the age in which we live, where Israel has officially, as a nation, by their leadership, rejected Jesus Christ, and so God disciplining them, uh, giving the gospel to whosoever will believe. And so the picture of God as a potter making or creating some people as vessels only fit for eternal destruction is for me not really a biblical teaching at all. It assumes the illustration of the potter and the clay has no context or commentary to explain it. It takes it at face value without going back to Jeremiah to see what God has said about it. It does have context and it does have commentary, and so we would reject that kind of an interpretation. God is sovereign. Mankind is free and responsible. With that as your basic understanding, you can see how a sovereign God is nevertheless justified in holding the nation of Israel responsible for their free choice to reject Jesus as his son and their savior. You might still struggle with the concept that both these things can be simultaneously true. I do until I remember that I only know about God and man and our relationship by what he has revealed in the word of God. I therefore see them both, and I trust that there is no contradiction or inconsistency. If I see two things in the Bible all the time that seem to be true, both are true, if they seem inconsistent to me or inconceivable to me, uh, that's because I am limited in my understanding, correct? I, don't, I just don't understand how two seemingly contradictory things can both make sense. How that God can be sovereign and man can have free will doesn't make sense to me. But if that's in fact what the Bible teaches, that's in fact what I believe. Because the Bible is God's revelation of himself to me. And I might expect, since God is transcendent and outside me, and, and, and greater, obviously, than us, that there may be things that I can't perfectly understand about the mind of God. Uh, Pam and I were talking about this the other night. I don't know if this will mean anything to you. I, I, it's 
means something to me, but uh, the, I, I'm terrible at math, by the way. Uh, I barely got through algebra. I know what geometry is. Trigonometry is where I started to really fail. I've sat in on a couple of calculus classes in college, and I thought, you people are nuts. I don't believe we went to the moon, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, so I, you, but I love the number pi. You know the number three point, is it 3.14 repeating, right? So, three point what? Yeah, don't, yeah, all right. So, pi. So I love the number pi. Pi is this magical, mystical, mathematical number that is used to do all kinds of amazing things, right? But it can't really be solved, finally. So when I think of math, when you think of math, I mean, some of you guys and gals too, you know, you do craft projects and stuff. You, you know, somebody says, well, how, how long does that need to be? You say, well, it has to be two inches exactly. It has to be two and a half inches. No one says it needs to be 3.1459765, whatever it is. No one, no one says it, it, it can't be solved. I don't know how long it has to be because it can't be solved. That, that never happens. But here's this number, and I think God, I really think God has a sense of humor. I think God said, here's, I'm gonna give you this number that can't finally be resolved, but it's going to solve all kinds of problems for you. It's gonna work in every situation, but you can never really get a handle on it. The more you think about it, the farther into infinity it's going to go. And this is in a closed system, in my mind anyway, like mathematics, where two plus two really does equal four. And, and things are pretty set. So how much more, I'm just speculating, in theology? Maybe, just maybe, there would be a few things we can't finally get our heads around because they're a little bit too complex. So it's not up to me really to solve for pi when it comes to theology. I'm just to figure out it, what is the Bible actually teaching? And when I read the Bible, you may read it differently, and then we can agree to disagree agreeably, or disagreeably if you'd like, but uh, I see that man has a free will. I see that God is sovereign over all things. We talked a little bit about this on Sunday, how this works out in God's providence, how that God is in control. Uh, If you're a Christian, if you don't believe God is in control, you've got problems. God is in absolute control, and I need to act appropriately. I need to do all that is incumbent upon me to do. And those things also are contradictory. There's a lot of things that are contradictory, but in a way they make perfect sense. And so we're going to struggle with some things. Uh, Don't reject something the Bible teaches just because you can't reconcile it or understand it. And, you know, it's, we don't need to put our own intellect on a pedestal and get to a point where we say, ah, ha, I understand it now. I have, but if I understand it by rejecting other things, then I don't understand God at all. And so here's where we're at. Israel rejected Jesus Christ. God pushed stop on the prophetic clock. He's calling out a people, the church, you and I, comprised of Jews and Gentiles. God's long-suffering is still in effect, and it will remain in effect until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When the last person in this age is saved, the Lord will return in the clouds. He'll resurrect the dead in Christ. He'll rapture the believers who remain alive at his coming. 
Then he pushes start again, and all Israel will be saved through the great tribulation called the time of Jacob's trouble. And when the Lord returns in his second coming, all Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will believe him, they will know him, and, and then the Lord will establish the kingdom that he came to offer the first time. So that's where we're at. That's what's happening. That's what Paul is talking about. He's giving his Jewish uh, fellow believers biblical, scriptural, Old Testament perspective on why and how God is accomplishing this within the framework of Scripture, having prepared beforehand for all contingencies. Amen? Praise the Lord.